knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeps. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heeps, and thank you for returning as we become better habitat managers. Guys, I appreciate you coming back. We have a great episode for you here today. really enjoyed this one. We talked to Todd Shippey from Empire Land Management in Wisconsin. Now, Todd is a, another habitat consultant, and uh, he just shed his knowledge on us and, and dropped a few food plot tips for us. We talk about how being a trapper can make you an awesome land manager. We talk about maps and consulting, uh, betting, and how that's effective when you're trying to help people with their the land consultations. We talk about food plot tips. There's a bunch of food plot tips that Todd has that were really eye-opening. And, uh, you know, he's just nice enough to share his secrets with us. So it's an awesome podcast. Um, you know, we have also covered some beans and corn without a planter, you know, broadcasting, some no-till frost seeding. Yeah, I said that right. It's kind of interesting. Todd just really opened our eyes to a bunch of new stuff, and he's been doing this a long time. We're happy to have him on. Really fun, enjoyable guy to chat with. So, Todd, thanks so much for coming on, guys, and uh, hang on. We will have him here in just a minute. Now, I want to thank all of our land plan clients this year. Brian and I are heading down to a property in Ohio. Tomorrow we are going to be taking care of a 300-plus-acre piece with uh, our friend Mike writing up a couple of nice land plans for him. So, guys, if you're interested in this service, check us out at habitatpodcast.com slash land plans. Uh, I know I keep saying it, but we're booking out into uh, early June right now, and um, we're not going to take on too many more for the year. So, so I think, you know, anybody who's interested, let us know uh, sooner than later, and, uh, you know, we'll help you out this year with our land plan services. Now, guys, I want to thank Morse Nursery for the support in this podcast. Frank uh, and the team over there at Morse signed back on with Habitat Podcast this year for 2021. Um, we're going to see Frank up here on my property. He's going to come on up here to Michigan. We're going to do some 
how-to tree planting videos. We're going to show you guys the tree survival kits and really just learn how from the best on planting your mass trees. Uh, right now on Morse Nursery's Facebook page, they have some two-year-old apple trees, two to four foot tall, left in stock this spring. Normally, they don't have anything left in stock, so if you guys are, you know, a little bit behind in your ordering process, check them out. They have Honeycrisp, Golden Delicious, Wine Sap, Pink Lady, Gala, and Fuji. Now, you can also get them with a three times a charm package, which gives you a mix of apple trees that drop in different times of the year. Guys, all this is available at morrisnursery.com. Check them out. They help support the podcast, and we hope you can help support them. Great products. I've been using Morse trees ever since Charlie owned it, you know, three, four years ago, and um, they grow in our climate. We know they're good quality, good rootstock. So happy to be partnering up with Frank again and Morse Nursery. Check them out at morrisnursery.com, guys. Now, for anybody who uh, has been on our website recently, you're going to know there's a bunch of new gear on there. We have two brand-new hoodies. We have a couple T-shirts, coffee cups, hats decals, everything. So if you're not rocking any podcast gear yet and you want to, check it out. Um, if you submit your email address on the homepage, we'll send you a uh, 10% off discount for anything web-related that you buy on there um, gear-wise. So check us out there. Also, all of our social media is on there. If you're new to Habitat Podcast, you can find our YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. And, of course, 122 podcast episodes now. Um, you know, hundreds of hours of free habitat information. So thank you uh, for checking that out if you have. And, you know, leave us a review if you have any questions. We're going to be taking some listener questions for some episodes coming up. That's a good way to do it, too. You can submit your email on there and um, submit your questions. Or hit us up on Facebook or, or Instagram. You can submit your questions there, too. And we might host a couple questions throughout future podcast episodes. And speaking of future podcast episodes, we are recording some awesome episodes this week. Um, a couple guys you've heard of before that have not been on the show. And then, uh, you know, just some other land managers like us who are working really hard and making dreams come true for, for landowners out there. Um, a bunch of great content. Turkey season is right around the corner, too. So if you haven't heard our turkey habitat episode, go back to Pat McFadden. He is with um, NWTF, and uh, we had him on, let's see which episode it was. It was All Turkey Habitat, episode 82. Pat McFadden, we talk about turkey habitat, roosting, bugging, clover, all that good stuff, too. So if you're in the mood for some turkey stuff, scroll on back to 82 and find uh, Pat McFadden. We appreciate everybody who's leaving us great reviews on our Apple iTunes account. There's a link below in the show notes to the podcast you're listening to right now that can direct you to leave us a great review. I'll send you a free decal, leave us uh, your information for a land plan. All that's right below, you guys, in the show notes here. And um, just make it easy for you in case you want to get a hold of us and see what else we're doing these days. I want to also thank Packer Max Colta Packers. Lincoln's new crimper is about to hit the market. If you haven't seen the ATV roller crimper that attaches to your cultipacker, check us out at Habitat Podcast Facebook. We have multiple videos up on there or at the Packer Max Facebook. Lincoln has his videos on there as well. Um, the, the crimper is not on the website yet, but it's almost there, guys. It's pretty awesome. I cannot wait to get my hands on one. 
I also want to thank Killer Food Plus, The Habitat Hook, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Huntwise, Morse Nursery, and Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction. I, uh, guys, I just thank you so much for coming here. We really appreciate you listening. Here is Todd Shippey from Wisconsin, a great episode on all things habitat management. All right, everybody, we're back. We have Todd Shippey on the line with us, and we also have Brian Hallbly from PA. How are you guys doing tonight? Good, good. Had a long day out in the field. It was a good day. Good. Yeah, that's great, awesome. Jared. And, Brian, you're doing great? Yeah, doing great. Weather's turning and spring's here, and see how long it lasts. No, I hear you. It was like 68 degrees today, something like that. Pretty nice, you know. Um, yeah, happy spring is around the corner. Lots of habitat stuff on the mind. So we got Todd on. Todd, let's hear about where you're from, what you do for a living, you know, all that fun stuff. Paint us a picture, who Todd Shippy is, and uh, let's get this thing rolling. Sounds good. This could end up in your nightmares. You know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a land manager for a living. Uh, that's all I do right now. I was a firefighter, for a professional firefighter and paramedic for 34 years. And uh, retired. I started doing this before I retired, and now I just do this full time. Well, hey, thanks for your service. Thank you. Thank you. That yeah, I appreciate good, that. Good way to make a living, lighting fire, uh, fighting fires. And now uh, on controlled burns, I make a living lighting fires in a strange <laughs> way. And, and where are you from, Todd? What part of the world do you live in? Uh, Wisconsin. We're, I'm in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, born in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. A lot of people know Oshkosh, but gosh. Um, Fond du Lac is on Lake Winnebago. A lot of walleye tournaments on Lake Winnebago. Uh, I'm right between Green Bay and Milwaukee. As soon as you said Fond du Lac, I thought walleye. Boom. Yeah, yeah. Well, Just like that. I'm a big walleye fisherman. So, hey, do you get out at all? Or? I used to. And then uh, when I had kids, it just was not time to do it right. And so yeah. I took a, a <laughs> it's funny, I took a long time off. And then a buddy of mine is tournament fisherman. He said, hey, you want to come along fish? I said, yeah, I haven't fished in years. And they figured out how to take the fun out of it for me. By the time I get a beer cracked open, it's time to pull anchor and rip off to the next spot 100 miles an hour. And then uh, it, it was fishing opposite of what I used to. If I catch a big one, I had to let it go because he thought he was going to catch it the next weekend in the tournament. I tried to tell him he was going to have a sore mouth. This thing could eat for a month. but So uh, we plugged along like that. Yeah, what kind of tournament fish were you uh, letting go to catch the next week? What size would you say? Oh, I mean, five, seven-pounders taking them off like nothing. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's Lake Winnebago. You're not going to get the ones like on Erie, but, I mean, seven-pound fish, I'm taking it off the hook in a strange twist of fate where, you know, 12 years before that, I would have been screaming for somebody to get a net and <laughs> thinking taxes for me. <laughs> Tell me about it. No, I don't have any eyes on the wall. I've been waiting. I've been on the boat in Detroit River when I've seen three 10-pounders get caught by all my friends, 10 plus, like 32 yeah. inches. I've never I've never hooked one. I'm waiting to get a replica done of a 10-pounder. So uh, I think my closest is probably seven, seven and a, a half. A guy I met on Instagram, uh, Brad Shippy, Shippy34 on Instagram. He's got the same last name. We are Sir relation, but literally met through Instagram. Uh, common interest, and he gets some big walleyes on Ontario and Erie. 
he really does good. But he's got a place, I think, right on Ontario. It's beautiful. Lake. Oh, wow. That's yeah. awesome. You've been in Wisconsin your whole life then? I went to college in Michigan and then came back here. Where'd you go to school? For a couple of years. Uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Nice. Davenport University. And then uh, came back here and started out, got on the fire department, firefighter, paramedic, and then always had a lovely outdoors, you know, hunted before that, um, fish, trap, and then made house payment a couple of years just off trapping. Um, you know, firefighters aren't paid as high as the cops, as Brian knows. And uh, <laughs> so we had to trap on the on my days off, you know, and for extra cash and stuff. And I really think any type of land management, I always tell people if, you, if you're getting into it or if you're going to hire somebody or you want to get in the business, you should take a trapper education course. You will learn more about wildlife movement and how to manipulate wildlife than in any other field whatsoever. A trapper education course and one year in a trap line. And you won't believe it. Now, let's think about that for a minute. You have to, a coyote runs about a 15 square mile is their home range. A trapper's got to get them to step on a two inch plate, yeah. trap can, or walk through an eight inch loop. Now you want to talk about taking from the macro environment down to the micro environment. Where do you set the traps? Where do you do it? The call, all of that. Coons, fox, everything different. You have to trap in the city. And um, I got a job today. I just went and set traps in the city for uh, muskrats for ladies digging out their pond. And a half hour later, I was up on somebody's roof. They got woodpeckers uh, pecking into their house. So I'm dealing with those. And problem solving on the trap line really ties into problem solving and land management. Um, you know, discretion. I had a talk with a client this morning about discretion. Um, where they had their hanging poles out by the street. They're about to kill some really big deer. I'm just first year in there, and they're going to kill some deer. They're going to kill some big deer. But they had this hanging pole set up that I said, either that's got to be boxed in where the road can't see it or moved back away from the road because if your neighbors see what you're about to hang, it's not going to be a good thing for you. Jealousy, envy, um, pretty soon you don't have permission or you don't have access or you got stands up and down your tree line. So we talked about discretion, and that's a big part of, of land management. And back to trapping, millions of dollars of fur are trapped in the United States. Have you ever seen a trapper? Yeah. You don't see them. You see afterwards, you see the, right. the, the hundreds of coyotes uh, hanging on their barn wall, or you see hundreds of coons going in, but did you ever see one? No, it's a good they point. And they slip out. They're not dragging them down the road. They're not showing them. They're in and out. Nobody ever even knows they've been there. And I, I've even had clients that said, you need to get a trapper in here. If it's an area that I'm not in, I'll say, here's a big part of land management. You've got a coyote and a raccoon problem. You need to get a trapper in here and uh, take care of some of the predation that you have on coons on your corn and coyotes on your deer and your fawn. And uh, they'll say, well, won't that, doesn't that scare the deer? A trapper can go through, and he's going to end up being just like the farmer. The farmer tells you about all the deer he sees when he's on his tractor or when he's herding the cows in, and the deer could care less because they see that farmer every day, and he doesn't even give the deer a look. Same with a trapper. He walks in, he checks his traps for a distance, he walks back out. After two cycles of that, the deer don't pay any attention to him. They know he's not there for him. So, Todd, that's 
an extremely interesting point. I'm glad you brought that up. That makes sense to me. Like, I know you're trying to direct, you know, the coyote where to step exactly, or beavers or muskrats. I know you, you know, you make channels and pathways, if you will, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. But one thing got my attention there. You say indiscretion. You know, don't let the, the neighbors or people drive by know. And I get that because big deer do a lot of weird things to people. Um, but there's also the, the other side of the coin, which is like, you know, lead by example type thought. You know, show your neighbors what you're past and what you're shooting so maybe they'll get on board. Um, what's your thought on that? I'm glad you brought that up. So, and I should have prefaced this before I talked about the client that has talked about this with discretion, he's next to a public hunting area. So there's a line of, there's a line of neighbors and then there's public hunting across the street. So that's why in that case, discretion. Now that's not to mean discretion to the public. That doesn't mean what the guys that I hunt with um, that own the adjacent property owners to my farm. We share every deer picture, every buck picture, all our photographs, they buy seed from me. I help them plant it. Um, if one's heading his way, I let them know if they're working certain things. We, we completely work together. And gotcha. it's so rewarding because when we get a deer, any of us in of about eight people around here, we feel like we all got the deer. Because by the time it gets the size that we shoot, we've all passed it. We've all fed it. We've all had some skin in the game of that deer's harvest. Absolutely. So it makes it, you know, it makes it fun and enjoyable. So um, when I spoke to, you know, discretion, but that doesn't mean I go hang the deer out in my front yard for every um, neighbor, non-landowner, or people just trap, uh, people just driving by or going past. I'm not saying that. Um, that's where the discretion comes in to play. I don't, uh, the quality deer management zone signs. <laughs> I don't like those at all. I think they just say shine here. Uh, at, it's like saying shine here at night. And uh, if you can ask every possible neighbor or, or a person that owns a little bitty patch if you can hunt in their yard, I just think it's sending out the wrong message. The people that are landowners that are doing quality management know it. There's no reason to uh, put signs out to advertise it. And I don't think they're that attractive. They look okay inside of a cabin. But out in the woods, not the best. Well said. I like your yeah, point. that's a good point. So, Todd, you talked a lot about fishing. Uh, tell us how you got into hunting, and were you doing the land management for a few years before you retired, or is that something that you picked up later on? No, I did it quite a few years before I retired. I really like, um, when I get into a project, I really like to immerse myself in it and learn everything that you possibly can and, and uh you know, from being squeezed down from doing everything to just being able to hunt um, until the kids got older, uh, a bow hunt and gun hunt with the emphasis on, uh, on bow hunting and finally got a piece of dirt of my own and started to work with that and took some really big deer and people would ask, well, how'd you do this or how'd you do that? And, you know, it's really interesting um, so the three of us would walk into a property, and we would look. There's the bedding, and our heads would go over and go, there's the feed, and our heads would look up, and there are some trees. But the, a, a lot of people don't have that woodsmanship, and it's it's shocking at the number that can't walk into woods and just go bedding, transition, feed, 
And once you realize that, it's really fun to share that information for them. So things that you and I would just take for granted, some of the most basic things, silencing a tree stand, um, silencing a hunting blind, uh, access, egress, all those things, um, that's just not as common as what we think it is. And the people that hire you to come in, it's really fun to teach and to work with them and to put deer on their wall. Yeah, for sure. And uh, as far as the land management, are you still uh, working on the same property that you picked up when you started? Or oh yeah, yeah, I still have that property, and then we've got a large, a large lease. And then I don't, I, I'm exclusive. I can't take on any more clients. I, I'm booked for, so I don't. Uh, I, I get a lot of requests, and I just have to politely apologize that uh, I, I'm exclusive. I've got. All the clients I can take on, it's almost like a concierge service. Um, sure. At the end of the year, I say, anybody want out? And they're already, I usually don't get to the end of the year, and they're saying, no, 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 you're coming back next year. You're coming back next year. <laughs> so That's when awesome. I get an opening is when somebody ages out or sells their property or something happens is usually the only way that I'll have an opening, and then I'll take on, you know, an additional, an additional client or replace a client with the one that I have. So, um, and it's, I mean, to do it for a living, it's stressful in the sense that not stressful like for compared to your job or, or my former career, but stressful in the fact that if you go pour concrete for somebody, the concrete's there, they can park on it. You go roof their house, the roof is there. Your job is to put deer in front of people and not just any deer, trophy deer in front of people. And they pay good money for you to do that. You have to do it. You have to produce. And uh, that always gives me stress. And I know a lot of clients say, Todd, you don't have to feel that way. You know, it's still hunting. We still have to do our job, but I do. You put yeah, that but they probably Yeah, really, they probably really want that goal, though. You know, even if they say that, they're probably thinking. Yeah, they must Todd. Be, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They've been really successful. I mean, last year – Last year, a guy who's after his deer forever, we went in and made some adjustments and put a booner 15 yards quartering away. He could be happier. Another client, it was a first-year client. They had never taken a deer off of the property. It was a big open field, basically, with a little bit of marsh, and they've got four at the taxidermist this year. So um, we've had some success, and then it spreads by – Word of mouth, you know, there's no, I don't have a sign, there's no truck wrap, there's no anything. It's just word of mouth, and, and you get as busy as you possibly can, and, and uh, it's fairly rewarding. That's great. Now, are you limited to Wisconsin, or do you branch out to other states? I'm now back down to just Wisconsin. I was in Illinois, Kansas, and uh, Iowa, and I've just weeded it down now to enough clients right here that I'm not going anywhere else. There's really, there's three kinds of land managers, the way I look at it. There's the guys that just do mapping and consulting, and some just do the maps from the computer, you know, without even visiting property, and they get sure. pretty close. You know, they do a good job. They get pretty close. And then there's people that visit the property, consult, and then do a map. And then there's a guy with a 40-horsepower tractor and a tiller on the back that just punches in food plots. You know, he shows up, where do you want it, what do you want? Does it have the knowledge of the why, what, where, when? 
And that's okay. It works for somebody because, as a matter of fact, I have a list of those guys. A lot of times people say, well, I want to, they'll come in to buy seed or fertilizer. Some will say, well, I want to do what you do. And I'll say, well, write your name down because if I do get a call for somebody who just wants a food plot punched in, they already know they have their bedding, they have their land set up, they just want a food plot put in. I'll give them those guys' names. Or if I get a call for that, I say, that's not what I do. Either manage the entire property or, um, or nothing. And right now, I can't take anyone on. So then I'll say, but I have this list of guys, and they'll be more than happy to come over and punch in a plot for you. And uh, they do a good job. So always teamwork, always looking together, not, not competitive. You know, if, if someone needs a map, I kick them over to this person that's really good on yeah. mapping. If somebody needs a, just a plot, we can get, there's enough work for everybody. And if everybody stays positive and, and thinks, how can we help each other out, it can be a really fun industry. And it will continue to be a fun industry. Yeah, that's a great point. Jared and I have that same approach, and we've been fortunate to meet guys like yourself and other guys who have that same attitude. And it, it's just a great time to get together and brainstorm and share projects and just work together. Like you said, it's it's cool to see when guys put their egos aside and don't try to be the experts in everything. Exactly. And, you know, I learned so much off Instagram. I really love yeah, Instagram, people share information on there, and you pick up a lot of things that you hadn't thought of or that you're too busy doing something, and suddenly you happen to notice it on there. There's a firefighter in uh, Tennessee, Kyle Shank. It, he does uh, Southern Land Solutions. If you, follow, you can follow him on Instagram. He does a good job. He manages about 1,200 acres, a full-time firefighter, good family guy. Him and I share information back and forth. He had a no-till drill before I did, and I uh, was asking him about that. And uh, he gave me a lot of good information before making that purchase. And so it's good. It's a good vehicle for getting information back and forth. Yeah, I think it's important what you said there. there you know, there's enough properties out there. You think of every parcel in the state. And, and guys are, are getting around to, to taking on this habitat management stuff where 10 years ago I was – weird you know reading about it on qdma forums nobody else i even talked to was was really into this stuff around me at least in my close circle and and like you said it's, it's cool to work together and just you know be positive and, and keep that going um yeah. and you know judging by by what it sounds like you're doing which is a great book of business and and something you love to do you obviously have a good approach to your land management your techniques your challenges um any tricks. I kind of want to get into that. When you first hit a property, get a new customer, what's your approach to managing their land, and, and how does that work into steps two, three, and four? First and foremost is locate the bedding, and if they don't have it, build it. But From my standpoint, bedding is above all. If you own the bedding, if you have bedding, it's the first place they leave in the evening, and it's the last place they go to in the morning. So it's all about the bedding. You know, when you say food plots and food, 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 and habitat management, but it's really the bedding is the key. Um, I'm in a agricultural area here. There's plenty of food around that they can get to. Whoever owns the bedding, and we're in a northern climate, so the thermal cover um, in winter, you got the deer. So that's really step one is what do we have for bedding? Where are they bedding? Do we have to move the bedding? Is the bedding right where your access is, so you got to bump them off of there, and then we build out from that 
from the dough bedding over to the buck bedding, and then we, we make the travel corridors. And I like to set up a property so that I have a series of food plots that they move through prior to getting to the, the destination plot. And the destination plot may not even be on their property, maybe on a neighbor's sure. property. But when I set up that, those the small series of food plots that they move through, I like that because I can get a doe out. Uh, for one, it takes herd stress off because you can feed multiple deer at a time. It could be an alpha doe in multiple locations, not seeing each other, not causing herd stress. Additionally, those small plots that a doe and her fawns come out on, or maybe a couple, they nibble, eat, eat for a while, and they move off. Now, that's a positive because I don't care how good a hunter you are. If you're in a tree, well, then an alpha doe underneath you in a capsulated suit, with, she's going to bust you sooner or later if she doesn't move off. So like to get the doe to move off, and when she moves off, that tells the buck, coast is clear, he moves in, especially in October when they're right, when the big boys know that before the little guys figure it out and start chasing like crazy, the mature deer know that those adult does are going to, are the first ones that go on heat and somebody calls it, some people refer to it as the false rut, but it's actually the adult does getting bred then, you know, October 12, 15, 16, before when people see those first rubs and if you monitor your cameras, you'll see the adult does go through and there'll be a mature buck within five minutes behind them because they know instead of chasing, they just kind of hang out by those adult does right then, breed them. So uh, that's why I like, I like them to move through those little kill plots like that and move on. Now, if you have a dead, we talked, I told you I've got some unique tricks on food plots. I'll share one of them that has to do with that. Because they're smaller plots, they can get over browsed in a hurry. And suddenly you just got a dirt spot there in what used to be a plot. So this is a this is a trick I call it the variable seed variable seed depth plot. So you go into an area, you're gonna put in a plot, whatever size, and you till the area up, put down the put down the um fertilizer, till in the fertilizer, then you're going to take a variety of seeds. So now you've, you've got a nice fluffy seed bed there. You throw down half the amount that you would normally plant of soybeans, wheat, winter peas, and oats, all larger seeds. You till that in at two inches. Your tillage seed depth with tillage over the top of it is half the tillage depth. So if you till it at two inches, you put those seeds all at about an inch deep. Now you take the other half. Now seed beds fluffy, yet seeds are down in, most of them about an inch. You go over the top now and broadcast the other half of those seeds. Now you go over that with a cultipacker. So now you got seeds deep, you got some bigger seeds at the surface. After you cultipack, you go over it with your brassicas, some clover. They're small plots. Clover's cheap. All, all, all food plot seeds, of that, that portion of a food plot, the seeds are the cheapest part of the whole thing. So you go over with your small seeds, brassicas, clovers, call the packet again, go home and light up a cigar. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> so that sounds like a, a very uh, intricate process that you've, you've dialed in. How long have you been doing that for? Oh, years. Years. I mean, that's got to be 
time flies. I'm going to say seven seven years. I mean, you, uh, you think about seven it. You're, ten. you're potentially tilling one, two, two times, right? Yep, you're tilling it twice. And then, and then that second batch of beans and, and peas and whatnot, that or your second batch of seeding after the two-inch deep seed, is that still uh, beans and peas and oats again? Yep, it's the other half of the large Got seed. Got it. Got because it. You, can't put lar- you can't put small seeds in the fluffy soil. They'll bury them too deep. Correct. But you can broadcast on top. So I want some deeper. So what happens, the reason for this is when the dough comes out to feed, there's always a new plant coming up. Here comes a couple of, here comes, you know, 20% of the oats are up. 10% of the peas pop up. A few of the soybeans pop up. They're just going to get nibbled off right away and they move on. But the following night, it, it can't, they can't stand there and wipe it out. And two nights the following night, here comes a few more soybeans, some peas, the oats. Now the brassicas are coming over on this side. Um, the, the, the wheat's coming. There's always something popping up and it gives you longevity in a high deer density area. You get a longer, you get longevity out of that smaller kill plot that you're trying to get deer to move through instead of it getting burnt out in a high deer population. I love it. I love it. And is that uh, an annual clover, perennial clover? It'll be, it can be, well, depending on the climate that you're in here, we always use perennial clover. But when you think about it, uh, so a, a, a half acre bag of clover is 35 bucks. It lasts three to five years. So at 35 bucks, you're using maybe a tenth of it on these small kill plots. Gotcha. I mean, even if you, even if you planted a half acre and tilled it up the next year, it's 35 bucks. We're hunters. Right. We burn 35 bucks in a bar after a, after we kill a buck. <laughs> I shouldn't say it like that. I should, yeah, thirty five dollars for the beer gets drank after a buck. I should, yeah, you know, you know, I, thought, I thought you were going to yeah. go. I was shushing because I thought you were going to go into the hunting gear side of things. I was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> so I'm the hunting gear stays the hunting gear. Yeah, and thirty five bucks in beer after a bar shoot. Yeah, I drank that in Illinois this year. That's for darn sure. <laughs> yeah. um, that's an awesome. Awesome food plot thought there, Todd. I love it. Uh, I can't wait to hear your other food plot tricks. I wanted to hit one thing before we get into them, though. You mentioned start with the bedding. Start with the bedding first. Yep. That makes sense to me. Um, talk about how you create that bedding. I'm guessing you're you're probably planting some conifers, but are you doing any sort of, sort of cutting, whether it's, um, say, say, a wooded stand. Say you got 40 acres, wooded stand. How are you going to make that bedding in your northern area? which is probably similar to where I'm at. Depending on, you know, depending on the age and the maturity of the woods. Now, um, if you look through my Instagram page, you'll see, I'm always trying to think client first. So sometimes I'll bring loggers in. Like if I can see at a glance, you've got a lot of high value trees here. We'll get a logger in here and you may pick up 15 grand and then that's going to grow back into slashings. Um, if it's low value trees or, or, trees that are too old now to even be logged, then it'll be through hinge cutting and uh, daylighting, getting, uh, you know, getting some sunshine down the forest floor to grow up the stem density. Um, there's a multitude of ways to do it from bringing in a forestry mulcher to just straight up hinge cutting, um, dragging the tops over to use them for egress and access of the hunter or, uh, blocking out for the deer to feel secure. Um, every situation kind of dictates itself. Um, feather an edge, if it's a larger plot, I want to feather the edge, 
maybe I'll use some giant miscanthus or some switchgrass and drop trees out into it um, after putting, usually I'll put clover down first, not knowing that it's never get planted again, but it lasts forever in there. And then maybe some switch through there and clumps or, or big blue stem or prairie that will grow in clumps so the clover survives in between and then a few trees out into it um, to get the does stacked up in there and the bucks laying in behind them. So you do have food inside your, your bedding areas, then you you plant clover inside the bedding? Okay, yes. Yeah, uh, bedding and on travel quarters. And when you say plant food, it's not like a green, beautiful food plot, but it's some additional browse. It's In a sense, it's some additional browse for them just kind of nibble on it as they're walking out. So I'll use some no plow. You said I was doing some work with Jim Ward, Jim Ward's Whitetail Academy. When he comes to Wisconsin, him and I do a couple jobs together. Um, and uh, he kind of taught me that. He throws down some strawberry clover and some different stuff that will grow where it's real wet and shady. Just to, just to give them something until the, the wood starts to grow enough slashings. Or if it's a high deer density, you know, you don't get the stem density that you need for the deer to browse on. So then at that juncture, um, that little bit of extra feed kind of helps and slows them down a little bit on your property. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So once you get the uh, bedding taken care of, what do you branch off into next? Well, then we go travel corridors out to, out to transition areas and start looking at on the travel corridors, you know, morning stands and, and evening stands and gun stands versus bow stands. And then uh, the most important next step would be to develop the transitional area so that you have uh, an opportunity at them before they move on out into the food. And that's where the bucks are going to stage up that lateral movement back and forth on the food plot uh, prior to coming out in the transition zones that the uh, those bucks are going to cruise that back and forth while the does are out on the food. That's where your opportunity is. So are you making like uh, some type of deer walkways or just some openings to, to nudge them in the direction you want them to go? Yeah. Yep, exactly. And you can do that with, you know, by dropping trees. Um, sometimes a random snow fence might show up in the woods that just goes from here to there, but it, it bumps the deer two different directions that happen to be convenient for stands. Sometimes it might be digging a couple ponds. Um, you know, ponds, you don't walk through the middle of them. They got to walk in between them. Um, so that's a good way to make a pinch or a funnel. Uh, you can use snow fencing, trees, wire fencing. If there's a fence and I it's heading over to the neighbors, but I want them to cut through an area where the client can have opportunity, um, here's another good trick. Picture a barbed wire fence. Uh, it's got the posts and then the, the three strands of barbed wire. Well, if you want them, you pick the, the, the in-between-the-post area you want the deer to go through. Talk to the farmer first, get permission. You're not going to damage a fence. You're just going to cause the illusion. This goes back to trapping. So I'm going to take the middle section that I want them to go through. You guys still there? My uh, computer just changed. Yep, so I got you. Okay, cool. Um, so you take the middle section you want to go to. You go one section over, and you take twine, tie it to the top, very top of the fence post, to the far fence post away. Then you're going to 
your middle section. Now you go over to the other section and tie from the top of that fence post out away from the section you want them to go to. And then in the middle of the section you want them to go over, you tie a string to the top strand, to the middle strand, and you just pull it down maybe even a half an inch. When you stand back and look at that, it gives the illusion of the fence is down, that there's a significant lower spot. And the deer look out at it and they go high fence, high fence, oh, right here. And they'll go to cross, and then that sometimes is your opportunity before they go into a big egg field. Um, it might not even be a hunting neighbor, but you, you need them to go to this location versus the other locations. It's a nice way to affect their movement. Yeah, I've, I've seen that technique used in a couple of different ways, and I like that you brought up the snow fence too because that's something that we don't talk a lot about, and uh, I've used some of that before. And Yeah, like you said, just making a, something a little bit difficult for them and just nudging them a certain way, that's a great way to get them in front of your stand. Yeah, they're lazier than we are when it gets down to it or just like us, so they want to take the easiest easiest route. And then a, another type of plot, I'll, I'll just move over to the, the plot portion again. Sure. Another type of plot that's a good trick in high deer density, and I get that question a lot at the deer shows and, and some of the seminars that I do. People will say, well, that high deer density, I planted a food plot, and it's gone right away before the season even gets here. Well, what I do is I put in what's called a sacrificial food plot. You guys ever heard of sacrificial food plot? No, but I know where you're going with this, I think. Okay, so you've heard of sacrificial anodes on steel tanks, and on all the gas lines in our country have sacrificial anodes on them. So the anode is has a greater affinity for corrosion than the pipes that are in the ground. So any corrosion goes right over into the sacrificial anodes, and those get replaced periodically. Uh, underground uh, gas tanks, when they used to be made out of steel, they all had sacrificial anodes on them. Pump uh, fire engines, when they had steel tanks, now they're all poly tanks, but when they had steel tanks, they had sacrificial anodes that we had to change out. Well, I liken the sacrificial food plot to a sacrificial anode. So with the sacrificial plot... Um, I'll leave, I'll plant, there's a number of ways to do it. You can either uh, completely retail the plot after the deer are on it and after they have, de uh, you know, just decimated it, and then you just till it in and put it in a highly attractive one again, but it gave you your corn a chance to jump, your beans to get off a little bit, your uh, uh, maybe your new clover plots and all those things a chance to get up out of the ground. And then you just go ahead and terminate it and replant it again. Or you can flip it. So an example of that would be I planted one that was a ring around the plot of uh, ambush from Whitetail Institute. It had um, sweet lupines, high sugar oats, triticale, uh, winter peas, and it's really made for fall, but you put it in the spring, and through the summer it really draws in the deer through the early summer. So I left the middle in dirt. Deer love dirt. It gets them out of the bugs. It gets a little nice breeze out there. They can look at each other and socialize. Fawns play around. Then I simply um, planted the in after the, the outside got mature and eaten out pretty good. I planted the middle, let that come in and mature. And as that got real attractive and they were on that, then I simply tilled the outside and planted that again. Now that's a really good way to keep a food plot alive for a long time and to keep it fresh and interesting so the deer don't burn out on it. What are the deer densities in your area? Are they pretty high, pretty rich? Yeah. 
Yeah, right around here they're pretty high. You know, the trend in – Unfortunately, you know, it's really hard to get people to shoot does. Everybody wants to shoot a trophy buck. Yeah. And uh, it's really difficult. Uh, we've got one landowner here that, that he, he's not a hunter, but he allows his family in. But he always he talks to me about with stuff. And he said, I said, well, if I were you, I would put all your hunters that come in there, because they know it's a QDMA, on a two-to-one earn-a-buck ratio. So make them shoot two does before they get to shoot their buck off your property. Or if it's a buck they just can't resist, it's not anything official, make sure they come back and shoot two does. Um, because we've yep. got to get them. And, and, uh, and a lot of my clients, I run into the same thing. There's just so many does there that, um, and as we all know, trophy bucks just aren't going to put up with that. No, and, and actually I had a spot in college I hunted a lot Um up in Mount Pleasant there, just north of you a little ways where you went. And uh, his his rule was two does before a buck. That's what it was. Yeah. He'd let anybody hunt, and um, his name was Lawrence. Yeah, that was his rule for sure. And he must have had an idea or wanted some timber value to come up, but how do you know if a property, one of your customers or clients is, you know, Rich with or you know overrun with does. How do you know when you first walk in? You doing a browse survey or, or what are you yeah, doing to try to convince that land that landowner that he's got too many deer? You know the funny thing is that uh, the unscientific method is usually the guy is bragging already about all the deer that they have, but they just can't kill a trophy buck. So before the browse line, before the wiped out crops, before any of that stuff, generally speaking, people that aren't fully aware of how to manage a deer herd are very proud of. It's almost like an ego thing about all the deer that are there. They have, they think it's a strong point that their their herd is so big. There's so many deer there, just can't get them past that. You know, up to that trophy stage, or um, the neighbors are shooting them small, or all all these things that in their mind they think is the reason, when really it's just a skewed doe buck to doe ratio. So you said you have some problems trying to convince people to shoot does, or, or maybe you don't have the problems. It's just people in general. I mean, my grandpa never shot a doe in his life, right? So right. right. How do you – I mean, my, our forester who's on our, our habitat chat, my forester, he's always talking about that. He sees invasives coming up where maybe there should be some natives, but all the natives are browsed down because of over-deer population. And if you look at my food plots, they're mowed the heck down. Um, right. So I know he's on to something there. I know he's right. So what what else are you doing to try to convince these guys, or is it part of your your plan? You're telling these guys, like, hey, yeah, it's part, ten dollars you know, a year, big, no matter what. Yeah, a really big part of of a management when you come into a property is it's almost you know it's like um, your kids. You tell them something, they don't listen, but the neighbor tells them, and they're genius. Or <laughs> you know, anybody right. else, something they're genius. You know, I tell the same thing. I'm an idiot. Um, just that when you're coming in from the outside as a subject matter expert in that area, people tend to listen, you know, and a lot of times the guy will say like, it, almost like back when I was doing fire inspections, the janitor at a school would always come and say, could you please write this up and could you please write there? Because they won't listen to me, but we would write it up, a, a violation so they get cleaned up right away. Um, so you kind of have somewhat of an authority coming in or they'll listen and if they don't listen right away, you kind of give them some examples. And it's really interesting because when you show up initially, there's like an old skeptical guy 
that's been doing it this way forever, and what's this guy going to say to change to change our mind? And he's the one he didn't want it, but the, the kids talked him into to spending the money to get a guy in there. Yep. Go do the property talking. That old skeptical guy's there, and when you're done, the guy that's saying the most amazement and the guy getting his wall out fast enough is that old skeptical guy. Um, it's like once they hear it, it makes so much sense. And you're not making stuff up. You're just speaking the truth, and you've got real-world examples in, that you can show. It's always that guy that's the most happiest. So what happened is talking like a like a, a teenager all of a sudden is all excited about the potential that the land has. So it's kind of, from that aspect, it's fun. That's hilarious. Yeah, we've, we've had a few uh, people like that or, or guys who are, you know, just trying to help the – Change the way of the past, if you will. You know, just yeah. heard heard about the podcast, heard about food plotting, heard about habitat management, whatever it could be. Just want to make that next step, and then you know maybe they're a son or a cousin or whatever. Yes, that that rings true for sure. Um, Those are the ones. It's the the ones that are tougher when you get there and they heard one habitat podcast or they read one article. Hinge cutting is good, and they want hinge cut where they shouldn't, or yeah. their whole wood's down. Or switchgrass is good. So there's 40 acres of switchgrass. <laughs> yeah. All the crazy things that go on are uh, are more of a problem. But uh, No, you're right. And, and those guys, you know, they'll, they'll read an article or whatever and get out there and do it. And, and I appreciate that. You know, I, I've done that. You, you you try. You learn. You make mistakes. You move on. You, you juke and drive and keep going. But yeah. – you know, the diversity and, and a tool in the tool belt, you know, there's not just one tool, right? So, yeah. Well, exactly. And that's another thing where, you know, guys will say, who needs a big tractor? Put in a food plot. I can do it like this. Or who needs that? They're all good methods. I've got an 85 horsepower tractor with a, a, a six-foot no-till, but I also routinely put in prop plots with just some Roundup and top sowing no-plow or uh, – any method is a viable method, and the more tools, I'm glad you said that that way, the more tools you have in your toolbox, just because you, you have something or don't have something, there's always a way to adapt and overcome and put it in. And just because you have a tractor doesn't mean you can plant that remote plot on a, a back in the middle of a marsh where you want to move some deer or create a bedding. Um, you have to use other methods. So, um there is no bad method of planting. Nope, nope. I texted my buddy Jordan today. Oh, he, I saw something on Facebook. Guy was pulling a a manufactured one row planter on wheels off of a you know a corner bean planter, whatever kind of planter it was. Yeah. Cut one of the planters off. The coulter's down there and everything. Put it on yeah. between between two truck wheels and pulled it behind you know like a lawn tractor. And yeah. I'm like, hey, you know what? You can do that. You can walk it with that thing from TSC or whatever. I've never tried that, but there's yeah. whatever you got to do, you know. You know, what a lot of people don't know is that corn, you want to get a corn planter, um, but corn, it, it can be broadcast. It doesn't have to be planted with a planter. You can broadcast corn. You're not going to harvest it. It doesn't have to be in rows. True. So uh, I, I used to put in a lot of corn that way, just spread it, disc it in. Again, your tillage, your seed depth is about half your tillage depth. So you till your field, prep your prep your plot, and then simply broadcast the corn. You can broad, 
recipe for a really nice pot. The recipe is two bags of soybeans and one bag of corn, and uh, broadcast. You can fill. You can mix it up like that and broadcast it or dump it in a drill. Well, we'll talk about just broadcast. Broadcast the soybeans or broadcast the corn over again with your disc, and then cultipack it. You grow a beautiful cornfield. It's just not going to be in rows. You grow a beautiful soybean plot. They're just not going to be in rows, which at times, if you've got turkey, geese, or sandhill cranes, you don't want it in rows because they can do the math in a hurry and, and know that what, line up like soldiers and go down every six <laughs> inches as a seed, you know, where, where they're all over the place. They don't right. know. Yeah. Great point. So, so run, that, run that planting by me one more time. If a guy was going to broadcast beans or maybe beans and corn into a plot, this or even because maybe I've maybe corn. I've been thinking about it. I'm not sure. What would you? Uh, how would you do that? I have a I have a quad and a disc is what I'm going to hit this with and a pack. So you're going to disc up. You're going to disc up the ground first. Bust it up the big stuff so it's at least a workable plot. Sure. Then you're going to apply what I would apply as a starter fertilizer, nine twenty three thirty one. That's high phosphorus, high potash, and lower nitrogen. So you're not going to feed the weeds and you're going to get it blow those seeds up out of the ground. So I'd work 92331 into the ground or a similar starter. Then simply broadcast your corn over the top of the plot, run over it with your disc again, and after that, run a cultipacker over it. And when that corn gets to be about a foot high, you could spray Roundup over it if you have a weed problem. I would only do that once, not twice, because I'd like a, a little bit of trash in the cornfield for deer to bed in and, and hang out in. And then... Uh, when it's a foot high, you'd spray the weeds and then hit it with urea, 4600, all nitrogen, um, no phosphorus, no potash. And how big of a plot does this need to be, or how small of a plot can it be? I wouldn't go less than a half acre, with depending on deer density and the location of it. Um, I wouldn't go less than a half an acre, um, or it can get eaten by raccoons and, and uh, a doe and a fawn can go in there, a couple of them, and rip it up when they're in a doe stage in a hurry. Sure. Um, unless you're going to put it, like I do every year, I'll put one, about a one-acre one, uh, remote from where the deer are. So in the kind of, I have a portion of my property that's just remote. You have across the road, and there's really no cover around it, and it's simply put in every year for after the season. So they, it really gets no pressure at all during the entire season until everything is eaten beyond. And then around January 15th, they find it. And it kind of carries them through till February, the first week of February. And then they've got that beat down pretty well. Yeah, that's perfect. And yeah. You mentioned so fertilizer. But I think that's, that's one of the fallacies out there is people think they'd like to have some corn or they'd like to have some soybeans or if they think they need a planter to do it, and, and that's the farthest thing from the truth. Yeah, our, our friend Sam will appreciate that section there because we were just talking about this. He wasn't real familiar with people having luck planting beans without a, a planter of some type. So, Sam, I hope you picked that up, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you just, if you just spill beans and they'll grow. You can spill beans and gravel inside your pole barn and a beam of light comes in through the door and it'll sprout. <laughs> Any sort of bean that you're you're going for, Todd, forage, or, or what are you going for? Well, so, you know, the forage beans are nice, and I plant them in white to unstewed power plant. They have uh, the forage-type beans in there um, with some structure that will crawl up the sunflowers and viney legumes and all that stuff. Um 
And if you're planting a big enough field, the, the soybeans that are bred just for that, for food plots, the, the eagle and the other ones are real good. They a lot of tons of beans on them and tons of forage. If you're putting in a bigger field, that's a great way to go. But if you have a high deer density and say you only have an acre or a half acre to play with, I'd go ahead and put it in. Sometimes even a quarter acre if you had to for soybeans, it might be your sacrificial plot. Punch it in, and deer, what people don't understand about soybeans is deer love the leaves um, are the most attractive part of soybean. The little bean pods, they'll eat them in the wintertime, but if you compare the number of bean pods on a, on a soybean that would make it to winter to one cob of corn, you're way better off with the corn. So because of the fact that they like to eat the leaves, go ahead and put it in the summertime, and don't be afraid to till it up in August and replant it right away again in soybeans. Now when everybody else's soybeans are turning yellow or getting harvested, you've got green, fresh soybeans coming up out of the ground, and you've got everybody's deer on your food plot. Great point. So, so I saw you posted something about the fertilizer in the last couple of weeks. Is it, are we going to be facing a supply or cost issue for this year? We've already got, we're already dealing with that. I mean, the dealers are even calling me saying, hey, are you getting your real this year? Because it's really going up in price. Fertilizer prices always follow the gas prices. You see gas prices are going up. Uh, fertilizer prices are going up. All the farmers got money from the government for uh, during COVID and all that stuff, and, and people aren't going to let them get rich. So fertilizer prices got to go up. Seed prices got to go up. Everybody's got to have their hand in the farmer's pocket. So, um all the warnings coming through are buy early, lock your price, get in on it while you can. Um, I had people, I was just at the Wisconsin Deer Show and the Iowa one saying, well, where are you getting the fertilizer? Where can we pick it up? Where are we getting it? Um, so, you know, a lot of the the feed mills, the little feed mills that used to be fun to go to are getting bought out by the great big ones, the tiny right. feed mills. And it's just getting more and more difficult to have a female that you can walk in and just grab some bags of triple 18. So I've got, I've, I bought a bunch of pallets of triple 18. Um, I've got some starter, a couple pallets of starter, 92331, and then potash because clover, alfalfa, it really just uses a lot of potash, 0062. So that's what goes on there to feed the, feed the clover, feed the alfalfa without feeding any weeds or getting any grass competition. Right, right. So I also, um, yeah, go ahead. No, that's okay. Go ahead. I also saw that you were doing some uh, early planting, and you were talking about some unique situations where, even up in your area, uh, where it takes usually a little bit later to get planting, you were already putting some stuff in the ground. You want to explain why yeah, you're doing that? Yeah, that was a unique situation. So I've got a, I've got a farm on the more western part of the state where it got really bad soil. And I wanted to get the uh, – we got lucky. The snow melted off. Some came back. But I had about – in the mornings, I was getting about a half inch of frost still in that sandy soil. And I want to use less synthetic inputs there in a, a, a crush crop. So I was over drilling in buckwheat through a half inch of frost in the ground. And uh, but got in instead of frost seeding the buckwheat, it was like a combination no-till frost seed, and uh, punched in uh, seven plus acres of uh, buckwheat 
And now as soon as the soil temperature raises, and the other unique situation was I was greeted every day there by a flock of about 50 turkeys who would have loved to see <laughs> the broadcast it. Um, they would have been high-fiving me for broadcasting out the back of a tractor. So I tucked it in the ground under the frost. Um, as soon as the soil temperatures warm up, which it happens pretty cl- fast over there, that buckwheat will pop, block out the other stuff, and I'm just going to go in and crimp it and, and drill some plots in behind it. So it'll be a... It'll be a nice area. I'm trying to build the soil more than more than feed the deer. There's other places to feed the deer during the summer there with some agricultural crops, but that soil is just torched from years of a soybean corn rotation and questionable soil and with the droughts we've been having and the different rain events we've been having. Um, I'm on a mission to build that soil back up. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, Todd. A lot of guys these days are either in the no-till bucket or the conventional bucket, and it seems like, again, with the tool belt metaphor, you're ready for either or, depending on the situation. Um, oh, yeah. Every situation dictates what you're going to do. And, and uh, you know, I like, and I always like to, a client stopped by this morning to, to give me the down payment for this year, as a matter of fact, and I talked to him about, you know, I always like to stick my toe in the water first before you jump in. Um, you know, it's, you try something, I, I did, I cut a bunch of trees down on his property It removed them and I had a forestry mulcher in there. He hasn't seen it yet, but there were some that I left up that I'm thinking are going to come down next year. I'm like 90% sure they would come down, but you can't put them back up. You can always take them down the following year or the following year, sure. but the one thing you can't do is put them back up. So you know, take it slow, experiment, see what works and then build on that. No, I love it. Um, and speaking of this time of the year, you know, springtime, you're out there already, you know, no-till frost seeding. I like that. I haven't heard that before. Yeah, um, that's got to be a first. <laughs> I like that. Hey, I like it. You're, yeah, you're uh, you're pivoting with the situation at hand. Um, yeah. How about, you know, this time of year, is, are you scouting? Are you looking for sign from last year on your client properties you already know where all this is at does it change a lot what are you doing to identify or create you know any more cover Uh, or or opportunities this fall for your clients yeah as you guys know um from being habitat managers you got to stay nimble and you got to be open-minded and you got to be able to adapt and uh that's today as a matter of fact i posted i was scouting some bedding areas and i found that the mylar balloon right there and uh which, as everybody knows, that points to buck bedding. You know what? I don't think everybody on this podcast maybe knows. Them. Let's let's talk about that. We we follow Dan. We follow Dan uh, a lot. Dan and Falls. So we know what that means. You know, yeah. hub or whatever. But let's hear what your interpretation of that is. And and so you found a balloon in the woods. Yep, found the balloon in the woods. And whenever you find a balloon in the woods, it dropped there because of the thermals and the wind directions and the way the wind is twisting around and that's exactly where an adult buck wants to be or a a buck wants to bed because all the wind is used to his advantage circling down to that spot and uh stumbled on one of those today so that that maybe that'll clear it up because i was pretty sure that everybody knew what that was but i did get a question today what did you find and what does that mean (laughs) on a pm so (laughs) yeah it's just uh yeah, you walk into the woods and see a balloon, and you see guys on Instagram with it. I, I get that, but see, what you're yeah. saying is the 
at the very end of that balloon's life, when it has very little helium or oomph left in it, it's going to just be dictated by any sort of thermal, light wind, barely anything, right? And right. it's going to end up where they all meet, is what you're saying. Right. Yep, and it drops in on that little honey hole, and those mature bucks know exactly where those locations are. Yep. And then usually not far there, you find a very clear buck bed. And I already knew I was in a buck bedding area, so uh, it was. Just, I just had to snicker when I saw that. Um, guys in the know or guys that follow Dan Infelt, you know, it's like uh, <laughs> he's right. I mean, there they are. You find them, and, and uh, it's just always kind of crazy. Yeah, that guy knows his stuff. We've been following him for years. Had him on here, too. He's a, he's a nice guy. Um, he is a nice guy. He's a very nice guy, knowledgeable. Yeah. And the nice thing is he shares information. Yeah. You know, he doesn't hoard information, which is uh, what's really helpful. Right. That's why we're all here. That's for darn sure. Um, how far are you from Dan? Uh, he's uh hour. Okay. That ain't bad. Yeah, just an hour south. Yeah. We definitely hunted some of the same ground. Yeah. Now, now when you found that, that balloon, how far is that buck bed normally from that balloon? I know you're, you know, it's not sitting on the bed maybe per se, but how big of an area would you have our listeners maybe check out or scout if you find something like that on their property? Well, this one was like as textbook as it could get. Wow. Third of the way down uh, on the military crest of a hill, um, looking out at a large ag field, completely secluded by slashings and uh, small, good stem density all the way around. Get everything working for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a place that anybody would walk in and go, there's got to be beds right up there. And uh, there's the balloon right in it. So, uh, yeah, the, the typical uh, 100 yards off of the egg field. And we've got hills around here. It's the, the ledge by Fond du Lac, the Niagara Escarpment. And it's on the military crest. It was a third of the way down. And just like as textbook as you're going to read about where to find buck beds and bedding, it was there. That's awesome. Um, now, is, is there any other fertilizer tips you want to hit before we move off the, the fertilizer thing this year? I know, uh, do you use any organic fertilizer or do you use all synthetic or, or what are you, what are you recommending for, you know, 2021 here? Right now I'm using all synthetic except for where I'm doing the, uh, where I'm going to do the, the crush crops, but I'm a big fan of, uh, urea, um, 4600 pure nitrogen, um, it really sweetens up a plot. I don't apply it to the entire plots unless it's corn or, uh, say, I'm trying to blow up some uh, conceal from Whitetail Institute. It's sorghum. It's a sorghum sunhap mix. Yeah, like a watering. Yeah, I want to get a screen to blow up. But I do, for my clients and for myself, put urea on the plots where I want deer to gravitate to or where I want them to move to. It uh, Even on, and it's counterintuitive, um, but even on legumes, clover, alfalfa, I'll put urea on portions of it. And uh, I know any agronomist listening right now will freak out, but um, we're not harvesting this and we're not talking about uh, bushels per acre that they're always worried about the, the harvest. Um, we're killing deer. And urea has a great effect on all that stuff to really sweeten it up and, and blow that up. 
you're, it's volatile. It's a volatile organic compound or a VOC. So it's up in the sky. It comes in powder form. It's up in the sky in about 24 hours. It greatly reduces its effect. So I tell people put it on right before rain. Make a half moon shape out by a tree stand that you want to buy if it's a kill plot. And or uh, if you're just strictly a gun hunter and you want them to get to a certain area that you're going to have a good shot at them, put the urea out in that area no matter what the crop is. Now, I was just going to ask that, so great minds, nice work. Um, are you doing this more than one time or just one time? One time in the fall is all you need. Okay. But it has to be right before a rain, and it can't be when the crop is wet. So you can't run out there in the morning do and put urea down. You have to wait till it dries out, and you want to be really sure that it's going to rain that night. That's that's the uh, somewhat of the hassle with it, but it's worth it if you're by there. Now, a lot of people live like here, but their hunting land is up north, right? Or they can't get up to it. So here's one of the best things you can do for prepping. And I talk to people in Iowa about this. I talk to people in Wisconsin about this. So. You're preparing right now. Everybody's got to answer their pants. You want to get the seed in the ground. You're up in your hunting land or wherever you're going to plant your food plot. Bring some of that dirt home. You know, you got to, you, everybody, you should do a soil test. I want to do soil to see the results, but bring the seed home with you. Or, correction, bring the soil home with you. Put it in a little window starter kit. I'll take your food plot seed, a little bit of it, and put it in different ones in that seed starter kit and put it in a window. Now, your dirt, under perfect conditions, because it's in a sunny window and dry, and you can give it water, and you're going to see what your dirt is capable of growing without having to wait two weeks before you can get up to your hunting land again or without getting up there and finding out, oh, I failed. Now you know in perfect conditions it'll either grow or won't grow or, hey, this these oats did really good, but I can't grow brassicas. It just gives you an idea of what will grow and won't grow under good conditions with rain and, and good temperature and sun because it's in your kitchen window. Now, you need a very understanding wife. <laughs> Mine's always saying, what is it this time? Um, no, I, I, I think that's freaking awesome, and I have three kids, so that could be a whole deal of a project. Yeah, they would um, love it. Kids love it. Are you planting in, like, one-gallon buckets? You're planting in solo cups? You're planting in... Hey, how are you doing that? All of the above. I well, what I do is take a bottom of like a the cardboard box that a, that a pop crates come in, and you put tin you can put tin foil on, or I'll buy the little seed starter kits. You know, a flat from a yeah. Walmart anywhere any of the box because they have little seed starter kits for people to do their uh, tomatoes and stuff, and I want to grow them in the house early. Um, anything flat that you can put your dirt in, you can even take a, uh, a grocery bag, a plastic grocery bag, and just peel it back. I've done that even. Just peel it back and made it a little flat. The dirt holds it flat. Put it in the window and sprinkle some water and put your seed on top. Put it at different depths. And you can do all the food plot experiment right in your own kitchen or living room. And uh, you're, that's cool. The kids love it. Um, I also used to... Uh, if you want to do a fun project with your kids, take and just scarify an apple seed, any apple that you're eating, stick it in a Dixie cup and put it in the window to grow an apple tree. It won't be the same apple that you're eating. It may not even be an apple 
that's good for your territory, but it's fun. It grows into an apple, and then you put it out in the woods and put a tree tube over it, and you grow your own apple tree. Great tips. That's amazing. And, really and I guess the, the next step, so first of all, listeners, uh, you know, we're going to have a bunch of happy wives, and we all have buckets of dirt and kitchen windows in the morning. And, do not uh, tell them Empire Land Management told you to do that. I love it, man. I love it. I think it's, I think it's gold. Um, so how do you – how do you manage those results? How do you take a look and see what's working, what's not? How do you tell what's, you know, what well, you, you, you don't need? Obviously, soil test, but what else are you noticing in these experiments? Well, you can put it under your best conditions, right? You're watering it. You've got a sun. It's got a good temperature. So now say everything grows. Now stop watering it. See what lasts the longest. Mm. So you're drought-proof. Um it's like, wow, these, these oats, no matter what I do until the worst extreme, they were the last thing that died. Or, hey, these brassicas wilted in a day without water. And you start, you can paint a picture of what's capable there. You can put, um, slide it to the side of the window, put part of it in the shade. Say, well, geez, this clover's doing good in the shade, but this, this these oats need full sun. You can learn a lot right in your living room without having to go back and burning up bags of seed and gas to find out in, in entire seasons to find out what will and won't work. You can learn a lot right there. Great then, point. Great point. I think notepads. Not you know, make your own notepads and be the mad scientist that's yeah. adding extra water, taking water away. You're gonna be so smart by the time you're done with that that when you go up to put in your plots, you're gonna know what grows where and what kind of dirt and what you're capable of. Now I mean, you're going to add fertilizer, and you're going to give it its best chance when you're up there and put the best stuff in at the best time. So, I love it. I love it. I think um, between that and the soil test and, you know, some high-quality seed, some good fertilizer, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to turn out good. Um, it does turn out good. And I plant, you know, a lot of places all over, so I don't have the opportunity to go up right before rain and put in – a food plot or, you know, you can't time it out. I've got seeds laying around and that's, I, I use, so I do always, I was the biggest customer for Whitetail Institute before um, a, a buying it. And now I do have it in my shed for guys come and buy it from me. Uh, so what happens every year, if anybody's out there thinking of starting a little business, here's what happens. We all want to put in our food plots. You go into a sports shop, nobody, they can't tell you how to grow anything. Right. You go to a feed mill, and they don't have time for you. They're putting thousands of pounds of this and thousands of that, and you're standing with a quarter-acre bag of clover with a uh, confused <laughs> yeah. They don't have time for you. They treat you like crap. Uh, out of here. I don't have time for that. So I have a one-stop shop. I sell seed, fertilizer, chemicals, sprayers, advice, seed spreaders, equipment rental, anything. When I'm around, people know they can just stop in and get it. Um they like it for a number of reasons. One, it's one-stop shopping. It's not running to a sports shop to get this, another place to get fertilizer, another place to get that, and then trying to team it together. Two, love bringing their kids there. I come in, i got my deer heads. I've got a, a stove, a little shop set up. It's a whole different experience to a young child to come to a place like that and see his dad talking about deer hunting and, and telling some stories and looking at a deer head and, and seeing a tractor that's going to stick in his memory more in the tradition of hunting that we all enjoy 
then, then are they ever going to say to you again, hey, Dad, remember that day you picked up your phone and went on Amazon and clicked a bag of this and a bag of that? Yeah, so very well are, said. It's, I mean, there's, there's a benefit to buying online. I do it myself. But there's a tradition in hunting, and people have very fond memories going to the store to buy shells with their dad or going to get in their first gun and picking up shells every year or getting their hunting clothes or going to the archery shop and getting tuned in before a season. Well, this is a big portion of it because for some reason what hooked me on land management was I feel like I'm hunting when I'm doing it. It's weird. I, I, I don't have a gun. I don't have a tool, but I feel like, I guess I feel like I did when I'm boiling traps before the season or when you're shooting your bow to get before the season you feel like that's a portion of the hunting season and that experience of guys come in and you get a little small talk and like we're talking right now and they buy their stuff and there's no food pot stores like that out there the only one i've got another guy uh in sheboygan now is setting up he does a real good job he's got the same thing fertilizer lime one-stop shop basically a food pot store and people love it people come in like crazy that's outstanding, and uh, I, I bring it up all the time. People will probably get sick of me talking about the old uh, check stations we had to go to when I would hunt in Ohio, and yeah. the community would be out there, and everybody would just be interacting, and just like you mentioned with the with the little shop you got going on there, there's just so much of that that has gone away, and it's, you know, we, we need more of that for sure. You know, it's funny. We had check stations here in Wisconsin. They did away with them. But all of them had this big orange sign. It said Deer Registration Station. And it, you never gave it another thought about those signs after they went away. You did on phone. It's kind of convenient. Um, I'm at a, a sportsman's rummage sale they have every year here in Fond du Lac. And some guy had one of those signs framed. And I'll tell you what, I almost popped for 100 bucks for it. It looks so cool and so nostalgic, <laughs> even though it's only five years old. I'm like, this guy's a genius. He thought to grab one of those. You know every one of them right in the garbage can at every right, those little right. gas stations and stuff. And uh, so I called around the gas stations looking for one. And everybody, they were like, looked around, ah, that thing must have gone in the garbage can. So whoever paid 100 bucks for it probably is worth 1000 a day to somebody. You're probably right. <laughs> and getting more rare all the time. So, Todd, we're coming up on turkey season here real quick, and I've seen you've done some property improvements for turkeys and doves and and some other birds. Walk us through what some of our listeners can do to help the turkeys and dove and and maybe some other critters on their property. Yeah, I like doing that. That's fun. As I'm walking with a client, all of a sudden he mentioned, I was there for deer, and he mentioned he turkey hunts. So I put some, I plant some chufa. Um, You guys familiar with chufa? Yeah. you know, a little, little bigger than a soybean, and it grows a whole pod of, of tubers or, you know, it grows a whole bunch of them off each one of those little soybeans. Put it in the spring, and you, you after it grows, you run a disc through it. And I was really surprised. A deer hit that, turkeys hit that, geese hit that, all kinds of stuff. It's a good fall, and then the following spring for turkey. But also, I so I used all Whitetail Institute products. I got hooked on it back in 1988. I used it... Um, it first came out, Ray Scott, you know, food just for deer. He was the best. Oh, yeah. And I thought, man, I, really? You know, could this be true? And we were grouse hunting up in Anagol, and we, we got some of his free stuff and put in a little plot of that clover. And the DNR had put uh, clover plots out for grouse and 
grouse only at that time. Um, there were no turkeys here in Wisconsin then. And uh, they were coming over eating our whitetail institute clover before they'd eat that other stuff. And, you know, we were dumbfounded by it, but I didn't have a, I didn't have a road to hoe, as they say. So um, as it went on, when I got land and, and started having access to putting in plots, I always used it. Um, it did really seem to attract it. And now the reason that I use it is it's got rain bond on it. I don't know if you guys are familiar. It's it's blue seed. Yeah, um, yeah. Or green. It's covered in that rain bond. And that does two things for me. Most importantly, what happens I see when raw seed goes out, and there's a lot of good seed. There's there's all all good seeds are out on the market. I mean, I mean I'm not bad mouthing anybody's seed. There's and there's ways to do it, and there's people that that need to use um, maybe just bin run stuff, and, and you can get by with that. So, but the reason I use this is that coating on there makes a difference for me from this perspective. I've got seed all over the place. I can't wait till right before a rain to put it in the ground, and the raw seed has a tendency for me in a dewy morning, I've experienced this, where it'll germinate prematurely. So it's just dewy, and that little raw seed thinks, okay, go time. It germinates. Then the sun comes out there in the midday and cooks it. Or worse yet, a nice dark soil plot, um, and you get a, a decent rain. The whole thing germinates, and then it doesn't rain again for 17 days. And the whole right, plot right. is off. So this, with the rain bond on it, it's one that holds the inoculant up next to the seed. But additionally, that draws 200 times the water up with with vitamins and all the other things that you can put in the rain bond that white tail puts in. It draws that moisture up 200 times up so it keeps the plant healthy if it doesn't rain again. If it does germinate because of the rain, it doesn't rain again for two or three weeks, it's acting like a sponge. And I, I saw there's another product they put out in the dirt that does the same thing. And I think this is just uh, maybe from Killer Food Plots or something. Yeah, it's called yeah. Retain, yep. Yeah, I think it does similar same thing. Well, this is just connected right to the seed with some inoculants and stuff right in it. So um, that's, a, that's a reason on that. And uh, like I said, there's a lot of good seed out there, and, and I would never want to be an elitist or or if somebody's going in. I was, I was the same kid, you know, that going in on my own buying – whatever you can afford, and, and um, it can be done with anything, but that's just my reason for using this stuff. Sure. Now, the uh, Chufa, you've obviously had pretty good luck with that up in your zone in the in the more northern uh, reaches of it. Is that uh, – how, how do you plant that, and is that a perennial or an annual? That's an annual, and I drill it. I, I drill it in with uh, – I got two different drills, Um I've been putting it in with my just conventional drill after I till. Um, it works. Put it this way. I, I put it in for a couple clients, and then I have people say, hey, I saw it on Instagram where I stop it and I go, hey, what's that chufa? I'm going to try it. And they always come back for two bags. They buy one bag next year, and they always come back for two bags. So I keep buying more and more. And the guy down in Tennessee, <laughs> he's like, what the heck are you doing buying chufa up there? And, you know, I think it's going to end up being – just like rattling. Nobody rattled unless you're in Texas. We thought yeah, you, didn't, yeah. you didn't do rattling unless you're in Texas. And all of a sudden, somebody rattled horns up here in the Midwest. It was like, it works here, too. I think Chufa is <laughs> going to end up being the same way. Yeah, that, that's good to know because uh, I'm not super familiar with it. I've never planted it. But I always was under the impression that it was more for, like, uh, 
you know, not not as far north as where you are, you know, maybe mid-country, a little bit south, but that's great to hear. It could be planted and, and grows well up there. Well, the unique thing about it is that it actually, if you sit down and think about it, it makes more sense to plant it in the northern climes than in the southern climes because in the southern climates, there's bugs already by turkey season, and they're out in the clover bugging and, and scratching out there. There's no bugs up here. It's 37 degrees and 20s at night. There's no bugs around, and our turkey season's open. So, But there's if you got chufa in the ground, they're out there scratching. Um, it makes complete sense to have it here. Now in our later seasons, they go all the way through May. Then you'll have turkey and bugs. But for those early seasons, chufa makes more sense, I think, to put it here than it does down there. Now, what about doves? What are you planting for doves specifically? Well, the sunflower, I use the – so there's – you can put the conceal the following year. That's bird-resistant sorghum with sun hemp. So it gets it past the deer don't eat it in the doe stage and the birds don't hit it as hard until the tannins go out of it, sort of like a, a red oak acorn. Uh, so the doves will hit that. You can mow it, uh, take a flame mower and mow it before dove season. And then the other would be a uh, power plant. That's all. It's two different kinds of sunflowers, the big ones, the little ones, the ones that get 300 stems, and it's sun hemp and sorghum and a bunch of other stuff in there. That's really good to mow in there, and the doves just hammer it um, come dove season. So um, those are the two. I haven't done just pure sunflowers because it's uh, – it's you've got to have perfect timing for here unless you buy the ones that can take a pre-emergent, which are really expensive, to time it out where you disc it, serial disking to, for weed control, and then quick punch it in at the right time that they jump up um, and, and shade out the weeds. So I usually go with the other two stuff from Whitetail and uh, have pretty good luck. People are no complaints so far. So, Todd, I'm curious, we're getting towards the uh, latter part of our discussion here. What are your management goals or tips? Um, first of all, goals. Maybe let's talk goals. For you this year, you know, like you said, you got a you got a full plate, but what are you trying to get accomplished for your clients and and maybe some some tips for the year that maybe us as listeners should look out for? Well, my goal is always the same for a client and this is this is generic speaking for all the clients, is to try to get them so that they don't need me anymore. That was I was a lieutenant on the fire department. That's what I always try to do with my crews is I want to operate that you no longer need me. Whether I'm here or not, I know you're going to operate efficiently, effectively, widen your area of expertise and shrink your area of, of just awareness. And that's what I want to do with every landowner. I want them to be able to get to the point where they don't need me any more than maybe come in and, and mow a food platform once in a while. And I like, it's fun when you're with a client for a while and all of a sudden they're telling you what they want done. Hey, I think you should put some bedding over there. Hey, the deer are moving like this. You need to make another. That's when I know I did it right because it's a teaching and a fun experiment and not so that they're always relying on me. They're learning to the point where they start to tell you what they want done. That's what, that's the goal. That's always the goal. And to try and get them where they think, I don't need him anymore. I've got this dialed in. I understand it. Then I can move on. I love that. 
I love that, and, and I can uh, relate a little bit. My, my buddy Brian asked me last spring, I think, to help him with his brand-new farm, and, you know, we worked on it a bunch and, and hunted it, and they did very well. And But the whole time since then and, and the more I talked to him, he's telling me ideas. He's telling me things he wants to do, just like you just said. I'm, I'm always, like, just sat back a little bit going, man, this is awesome, knowing that you know what I know and that you, you want to talk about it, you want to learn. You're doing this research on your own on the side or, or whatever. You know, this is this is amazing. Um that's pretty cool. I've experienced that one time, so I, I get what you're saying. That's great. Yeah, it's the most time. It's the most um, enjoyable type of teaching. From you know, you, from you start off and you get there, and they don't even know to silent their tree stand that the the clips are in there rattling as you go up a stand, or a, a lock is right, and all those little the minutia of a hunt that the little bitty details. Yeah. That just like we're fishing, the one guy gets all the fish all the time, and you know he's got some secret. And just teaching people those little things that separate pros from amateurs, more or less. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, we're gonna hit you with the uh, the final question. It's kind of a big deal. Um, hope you're ready. <laughs> um, I want to know what your favorite tree is, Todd. Favorite tree. Favorite Habitat. Tree. Hunting. Um, land management for your clients, whatever it could be, driving down the road. What's your favorite tree? Hickory. Oh. Um, the and reason why? is, but not just because um, my grandpa was my best buddy and taught me how to hunt. And it always reminds me of him coming over. We had a hickory tree in our front yard, and he'd be over picking hickory nuts. And then he would crack them all winter long. And so for a fond memory, hickory tree is always my favorite because it reminds me of my grandpa. Um, otherwise, uh, most deer, trophy bucks, I believe I read an article once, are killed over apple trees or in apple trees. Um, so apple, from a from a attracting deer standpoint, sure. they're the number one tree because they're consistently give you fruit everywhere. They might like every year. They might like acorns better, but acorn crops are good in bad years. Where apples, if you prune your tree, you get apples every year. So apple from a deer killing standpoint, from a beauty standpoint, you can't beat a sugar maple in the fall. It just takes your breath away. Beautiful sugar maple. And for thermal cover, I like a white spruce that's native to Wisconsin, native to America versus a Norway spruce. And it gives good thermal cover. It doesn't drop its lower needles, and the deer don't eat it or rub it as much. Awesome. That's outstanding. Awesome. (laughs) So there's a mouthful on trees. Thanks Love for it, that, Todd. That was great. You do a whole Habitat podcast on trees. You can do a whole <laughs> well, Habitat podcast on just plots or just bedding. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll have to get you back on for only trees. Oh, that's one. I've got a really fun way. Uh, like you said, you have kids, a project for growing oak trees. Um, we probably don't have time for this, but it's, with, it's just picking up okay. acorns, put them in a bucket. The ones that float mm-hmm. are no good. The ones that sink are good. And then you grow them under a milk jug. Awesome, because the thing about an oak tree is it grows for 100 years, it lives for 100 years, and it takes 100 years to die. So you plant in a legacy that's going to be there long after you're gone. You know what? That's, that's funny. I did that exact same thing. And if you, if you scale back in this podcast long enough or, or our YouTube videos or something long enough, you'll see me doing acorn tests in a bucket with my kids. Yeah. problem is 
the little sons of biscuit squirrels or rabbits or something nipped them all off after they got about a foot high. We planted, I don't know, two dozen red oaks and in my yard here, put fencing around them, everything, and I got tore up. Huh. If you put up, did you throw them under a milk jug? Put the bottom of a milk nope, jug. I missed that. I missed that detail. Nobody told me that until right now. Because then it's like its own little greenhouse under that. You cut the bottom of a milk jug and put a stake through, and then it's like a little greenhouse, humid in there, and it really jumps up. And then you put a tree tube over it uh, because those green grow tubes or white grow tubes. Yeah. A tree will grow 600% faster in a tree tube. So that wow. seedling, the second year, will be over a four-foot tree. Jeez. I mean, I've, I've seen it with my chestnuts that I did after that um, that didn't get totally decimated by the rodents around here. And, but uh, no, to your point, that is a great project. The milk yeah. jug is a, a great tip, too. Yeah, good deal. Hey, it was really fun chatting with you guys. Uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. But I learned a lot from you guys and uh, had some fun. Yeah, for sure, Todd. I'm I'm so glad I was fortunate to come across your Instagram page, and uh, you're gonna have to tell our listeners where to find you because after listening to this, I think they're really gonna want to start following what you got going on. Yeah, at, at Empire Land Management. I think it's at Empire Land at Empire Land MGMT at Empire Land Management. So. Outstanding. There are a lot of tips and a lot of this stuff on there. And try to keep it fun, just a variety of stuff on there. But it's really a land management page. And uh, You got anything else going on? Any websites or Facebook or anything? No. Nope. I'm pretty much – we. the problem is we live in a dead spot here for Internet. Um, I'm not that remote of a location, but – it just it ends, and they said it was going to be here, so I just signed up for uh, Elon Musk uh, Starlink. Yeah. So they'll save the day. It's supposed to be here sometime mid to late. Then I'll be able to do more of that because I would love to be able to put on the videos and, and do all kinds of stuff, but kind of handicapped a little bit. Sure, sure. Well, you got it going on with the word of mouth, and that's that's working fine for you, so you don't need all that fancy stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Todd, so, thanks again so much, man. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, that was an awesome podcast. So well, you can bet we will be calling you back, my friend. You can bet. Anytime. I'm happy to help out, and it's fun talking to you guys. So keep up the good work. Thanks, Todd. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have 
Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Hunchwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.